It's good to see you this morning. Before we begin, let me just uh, say a word about this upcoming event in October. Our North Central District Fire Fellowship is going to be held here at Bethany on October 26 and 27. Uh, Mark that on your calendar, October 26, 27. I'll have in the bulletin next week all the information uh, about it. But if you want to go and check out um, the conference on the website, it's firefellowship.org, and you can click on on uh, fellowships, and uh, you can find your way there. It is a paid conference, so those of you who would like to attend, uh, of course, you'll need to register online. But uh, meals are provided for those days, and uh, good fellowship, uh, uh, good preaching, encouragement. So uh, I hope that you'll look at it. I'll have the information for you next week. Let's go to John chapter 5. Last week we centered our thoughts mostly on verse 24, and that's why I've got verse 24 with a comma and then verses 25 to 29 uh, in the heading. Uh, this is part two of that, of this passage. We dealt last week with Verse 24, which Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. And so last time we saw that there were two aspects of the resurrection for the believer in Christ. The first aspect was the spiritual one, which is an individual, which an individual experiences through the new creation life that happens at the moment of faith in Christ. We call it regeneration, being born again. Uh, these, these terms describe this event, this spiritual aspect. It is a resurrection to life. And it's explained by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 6. The other aspect of the resurrection for the believer is the physical resurrection that will occur when Christ returns at his second coming. At this resurrection, our mortal bodies, this body we now live in, will be changed to be like his immortal body by an act of transformation, Paul tells us, and a transformation that only God can achieve. This is revealed to us in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 3, among others. Now we come to verses 25 and through 29 this morning as we begin to wrap up this little section. Jesus is not finished defending his deity. He goes on in uh, verses 30 through the end of chapter 5, defending his deity, claiming himself to be God with witnesses, further witnesses to this uh, in those last Verses of chapter 5. But notice in verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, 
For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. This is... This would have been a startling statement to the Jews he was speaking to on that day. It is a startling statement of its own right. That those who are dead, who are in the graves or in the tombs, when they hear the voice of the Son of God, will come out of the tombs. And there will, for some, it will be a time of life. And for others, it will be a time of death or judgment. The phrase, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live, is one that points, that is, that has become, for many, a very difficult one to understand. The point here is that the possession of divine life begins with God, not with man. The life that God gives to those whom he chooses is not a reward for believing. Let me say that again. The life that God gives to those whom he chooses is not a reward for believing. For a person does not believe, and then God gives them life, it's just the reverse. God gives life, and then the person believes. We see this very clearly in in chapter 6 when we get there. Life comes first, and then belief. This This all happens through the power of the word of Christ. Now notice the word hour. Jesus uses this word many times throughout the New Testament, particularly in the Gospels. The hour is coming, the hour is here, my hour has not yet come. And when he uses that word hour, he's not talking about a specific hour as in 60 minutes. He's talking about an event. He's talking about events that take place in time. The hour he is speaking of here is one that has both a present and a future aspect to it. It is what is referred to many times as the already but not yet element of the work of Christ bringing the dead to life. The hour of the believer's spiritual resurrection, which we talked about last week, is now. When a person believes, it is because God has granted life and he gives faith to believe and the person believes on Christ and they have new life. Right now, present time, this takes place. When when regeneration takes place, the one who is dead in trespasses and sins, faith is imparted to that person. Turn with me to Ephesians 2. I'm going, to be, I'm going to be going to several passages this morning, so I want you to follow along with them. Ephesians 2, notice verse 1. <clears throat> We're substantiating the fact that's, that sinners are dead spiritually in trespasses and sins. Notice verse 1 of chapter 2. And you were dead in trespasses and sins. There's no better way to say this than that. You were dead in trespasses and sins. What what could possibly be more clear? Notice verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. So there's several things taking place here. 
Death is there. New life is there in Christ. Resurrection is there in Christ. And position is there in Christ. So there's an hour coming, a time coming, when the dead, the, the believing dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. However, there is another hour that is yet future, when their resurrected bodies will come up from the grave and they will be caught up to be with Christ. We call this the rapture. Now, there's all kinds of teachings about whether the rapture is is a uh, open event that people will see, or whether it's a closed event. Is it secret? Is it not secret? Uh, and I'm not sure that any of that matters. I don't think the unbelieving world will see it. I think it'll be a be a shock when. People are caught up to be with the Lord, whether it's at the beginning of the tribulation or whether it's at the end. It makes no difference. That's going to be a shocking time when people disappear from the earth. But for the believer, it's the change that we're looking for here. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, the trumpet will sound... And the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying, O death, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O Oh, death, where is your sting? Listen, people who have died previous to this event cannot make that statement. Because death has already had its sting. They're in the grave. They're in the tomb. The ones that say this are the ones that are still living, that are caught up and never saw physical death. They were changed. They were living on the earth when Christ returned. And they can now look back and say, Oh, grave, where's your victory? Death, where's your sting? Because they didn't experience it. In either case, the spiritually dead at the moment of salvation or the physically dead in the grave shall hear the voice of Christ and the dead shall live. Now we're talking about the believer here. They live with the eternal life that belongs to God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, that Jesus spoke about in verse 21 and verse 23. Eternal life. It is that life that God gives mercifully and gracefully to sinners whom he chooses. During his life on earth, Jesus offered spiritual life to all who would believe. So there is, there is no one that can say God is not fair, although it has really nothing to do with fairness. Because God has sent the gospel out across the world. The words of Christ are the key point here. It is the words of Christ that gives this eternal life. His words are eternal words. That's why he said in Matthew 24, verse 35, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word shall not pass away. The words of Christ are immortal. They are eternal They are also foundational to spiritual life. No one is saved unless the words of Christ are given to them in some form. The wise will build their lives upon the words of Christ. Jesus spoke of the wise person in Luke 6 who heard the word and 
built his life upon it. Listen to what he says. Anyone, everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does, and does them, I'll show you what he's like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on a rock. And when the floods arose and the streams broke against that house and could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. He sets it on top of the ground. And the stream broke against it and immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. The rejection of the words of Christ bring about the destruction that he spoke of in Luke 6. That house falling is a, is a picture of judgment. That's where it ends up. It ends up in total failure. Jesus said in John 12, The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. So the other side of this whole issue of Christ speaking and the dead rising, for the believer it's, it's a resurrection to life. But the other side of that is of the dead hearing the voice of Christ involves the spiritually dead. Those who are lost in sin are often referred to in Scripture as spiritually dead. Romans 6.13, present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Ephesians 2.1, we just read. Ephesians 2.5 says the same thing. We were dead in trespasses and sin. Ephesians 5.14, awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you. Matthew 8.22, Jesus said, follow me, leave the dead to bury their own dead. People are spiritually dead. You wonder why you can speak to someone about spiritual matters and their eyes glaze over and they just don't, they're not hearing you. They don't understand what you're saying to them. It's because they're spiritually dead. The only way they can understand it is if God gives them life. What gives them life? The same word that you're speaking to them. So you have to keep speaking it. It's the way it works. That's the way God planned it. It's the way he made it to happen. Now, we've already stated that those who are dead are insensible to anything. The dead do not feel or think. They have no emotion or action. It's the same with the spiritually dead. They cannot believe. They cannot repent of their sin. They cannot because they are in a fallen state of death. And they don't, not only is it they cannot, but they don't want to. Scottish commentator John Eadie writes that spiritual death implies insensibility. The dead, which are as insusceptible as their kindred clay or as the dirt, can be neither wooed nor won back to existence. I often used to hear preachers talk about wooing people into the kingdom. People can't be wooed into the kingdom. They don't care about the kingdom. Listen to what he says. The beauties of holiness do not attract man in his spiritual insensibility, nor do the miseries of hell deter him. God's love, Christ's sufferings, earnest conjugations by all that is tender and by all that is terrible do not affect him. It implies inability. The corpse cannot raise itself from the tomb and come back to the senses and uh, and society of the living world. Inability characterizes the fallen man. Death. Now we said last week that there was a resurrection for everyone of both the saved and the unsaved. And that's where I want to get to this morning. This is is the new part. All that is review with some extra added things. Verses 27 to 29, Jesus speaks of everyone, both saved and unsaved. 
And in these verses, we see the negative aspect of the voice of Christ or his words. Now, as a man, Jesus knew everything that human beings felt and experienced. In fact, John has already said it in chapter 2, verse 25. He said, no one needed to bear witness to Jesus about man, for he knew what was in man. He knew everything about mankind's existence. We sometimes forget that. We sometimes forget that Jesus understands everything that we go through here. He experienced every pain, every disappointment, every rejection of other people that they endure. But in all of it, he never sinned. Turn with me to Hebrews 2. The writer of Hebrews speaks of this about Christ, about his humanity and how he how he identified with people. Chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. Follow along with me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death... He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. So, now get this. This is very particular. It is not saying that he helps Every single person on earth, he helps those that are his. The offspring of Abraham. That that speaks of the spiritual line that we have in Abraham's seed. We are of Abraham's faith. So he helps those who are the offspring of Abraham. That's us spiritually. Therefore, verse 17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. <clears throat> now you can relate to that. You, you, you know, we often make the statement that you really can't sympathize or empathize with someone unless you've actually gone through what that person is going through. And that's true. You can try to understand, but until you face the same things that they're facing, the same troubles, the same problems, the same pains, you can only say, really, I'm sorry for the way you feel. I really don't understand it because I haven't experienced it. But when you've experienced it, then you can say, I know exactly what you're feeling. I think that's one of the reasons God allows certain Temptations and certain troubles and certain pains to come into our lives so that we can be armed to encourage each other when the same things happen to us. Jesus felt all of the things that all of us have ever felt. Therefore, he is able, as a great high priest, to serve God on our behalf. How did he do that? To make propitiation for the sins of the people. He is God's mercy seat for us. God is satisfied with Jesus on our behalf. Now notice verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. Turn to chapter 4 of Hebrews. Let's carry this thought on just a little bit further. Look at verse 14. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. There's the resurrection. 
Jesus was raised from the dead. He ascended to the heavenly Father. He is there at the throne of God. And he is interceding for us. Therefore, we can hold on to the faith that he give, that he gave us originally. And that faith can grow. For we do not, verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. That's the difference. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So when you when you come to those times of of trouble, temptation, problems, pain, disappointment, when you come to all of that, where do you go? You run to the throne. You bow yourself before it and you will find grace to help in your time of trouble, your time of need. And you find it from the one who understands it all. Who went through it all. His name is Jesus. Now what does that have to do with this phrase in verse 27? He has given them the authority to execute judgment. Well, it has to do with it this way. To say that Jesus has the right to judge because he is one of us and has experienced and shared Everything that we go through is not enough to qualify him to judge humanity. If that were the case, then there would be a whole lot of people who would be qualified to judge because there are a lot of people who have gone through a lot more than any of us have. Some have gone through more than anybody has. That's not what qualifies him to be the judge. There has to be a higher position that makes Jesus qualified to judge humanity. So equal to his authority to give life, Christ also has the authority to judge. This has been given to him By virtue of the fact that he is the son of man. Notice what he says there. I mean, this last, this judgment that he talks about here, it implies death. It implies eternal death in the lake of fire according to Revelation chapter 20. He is the son of man. And as such, as the Son of Man, He has the ability to judge. Makes Him uniquely qualified to judge because of His sinless life. And we see, we just saw that in Hebrews 4.15. 1 Peter 2 verse 22, He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21. For God made him to be sin who knew no sin. It's very clear that Jesus never sinned. In thought, never had an evil thought. Never had an evil deed. He was the perfect man. So what about the phrase, the son of man? Some say that in John 5, there is no article in front of this. It's not the Son of Man. And it's true, there is no article there, even though you see it in your English uh, Bible. But we get help from the prophet Daniel. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel the prophet speaks of the Son of Man, a concept which the Jews would have been very familiar with from their knowledge of the Old Testament. This Son of Man was one that will have dominion over the whole earth. Notice what Daniel says. Chapter 7, verse 13. 
And I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. In the clouds. So what does this have reference to? It obviously has reference to the rapture. The second coming of Christ. Uh, probably, I would, I would say probably the coming of Christ in glory just before the battle of Armageddon. What did the angels say to the disciples when Jesus ascended? Why do you stand here looking up into heaven? This same Jesus that was taken up into heaven will come in like manner. How did he go up? He went up in the clouds. Now, I'm convinced that that wasn't storm clouds. That was the clouds, the Shekinah glory of God, the clouds that, of God that we see throughout the Old Testament and even in the New Testament. And Jesus is going to come back in that same glory cloud that he went up in. It's his. belongs to him. I saw him come. The clouds of heaven, one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. The ancient of days, none other than God the Father. And to him, verse 14, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And the next line really is what clinches it. And dominion uh, should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion. Well now, this is not just any ordinary son of man. This is not just a son of some great man or some great man who is the son of someone that he's speaking of here. This is Christ. This is Jesus Christ, the the eternal one, the one who took on flesh by virgin birth. Everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Based upon these truths about Jesus as the Son of Man... His ability and authority to judge come together. He is uniquely qualified to judge humanity because he is the Son of Man. That's what Jesus said. They would, their minds would have gone back to Daniel's statement. They would have understood what he was saying. He is saying, I am God and I will judge humanity. What a startling statement for anyone to say. If it's not, if it's not true, then it is the most arrogant statement that was ever made. But it is true. Jesus is the apocalyptic son of man, and as such, he deserves and receives the prerogatives of deity. His kingdom is of a total dominion. He rules it alone. Now he will have Help in ruling it. The saints will help. The angels. But he alone makes all of the decisions. At the same time that he is the ruler and and has this dominion, he is also, he also lived and walked with humanity and belonged to their race as a man. Therefore, He is uniquely qualified to judge. Now, Jesus tells the Jews these things. And they're amazed that he is speaking these words. Because what he's really doing is he is saying to them, I'm God in the flesh and my words give life. My words will judge. And you should give me the praise that you give God. That's what he's saying. And that was a startling statement for them to hear. Because they thought they were the sons of God. They were the ones that were going to rule in his kingdom. 
And now Jesus is saying, no, it's not you, it's me. That upset the apple cart. So Jesus says to them, in verse 28, Do not marvel, do not be amazed at this. And then he says another startling statement. He says, For the an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. This future aspect of Jesus' ability to call the dead to life and the wicked to judgment is the amazing thing that he told them not to be amazed at. You shouldn't be amazed at this because if I have the power to give life, he's saying, and I certainly have the power to judge and give death. His point is this, that he has this power and this power is both present now and it will be present in the future. It doesn't diminish. This is what he's speaking of in verses 28 and 29. He's speaking of that time when all of the dead, great and small, will be called to stand before the creator of the universe. And John tells us that that creator is Jesus Christ. So the question arises, who are these dead that are in the graves? Who are they? Some say that these people are unbelievers only who are divided into two groups. Some who've done good and others who've done evil. But there's a problem with that. And I'm sure you're putting it together even now in your mind. There are none that do that does good. There's, there are no unbelievers that do good. You say, well, what about all of the good that people do to each other that are unbelievers? That is not what he's talking about here. The good that people do to each other has nothing to do with eternity. Nothing. They, they accrue no points for being good to one another. Or for being kind to one another. Certainly people have that ability in their flesh to be kind and to be good to each other. But it has nothing to do with eternity. It has nothing to do with their relationship to God. Romans 3 verses 11 and 12 says nobody does good, not even one. And so all their efforts of the unbelieving... That means all of the efforts of the unbelieving are only evil. Even the good that people do to one another, if they're unbelieving, is evil. Genesis chapter 6 verse 5 said that that's all they could do continually. On a day decreed by God, Christ will raise all who are in the graves and they will appear before him. However, the judgments that he speaks of here in verse 29 are not simultaneous judgment. It's not one great big general judgment. The judgment is divided into two different ones. There's a distinction here in verse 29 between the right, between the resurrection to life and the resurrection to judgment. These are two different things. So the judgments are not for those who do good as opposed to those who do evil. They are both believing and unbelieving souls that have died and are awaiting resurrection that is still future. The believing souls who died are in heaven with Christ. 
Paul writes of this in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 6 to 8. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, turn with me to 2 Corinthians 5 and follow along because I want you to see the differentiation of this as he, as he tells the Corinthians, about the future, our future time in heaven. Verse 6, So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. Now, what's he talking about? Away from the Lord. Does not Christ dwell in us? He certainly does. But we are not with him face to face, yet in heaven. We are not there physically. We are not with him physically. Spiritually, we are. He is in us and we're in Him. But we're not yet physically with Him. Verse 7, for we walk by faith, not by sight. That, that's that's the, how our life works. We, we believe what God says. We know we're not with Him yet. Paul said it's better for me to depart and be with Christ, but I need to remain here with you. So there's an aspect of this in which We're with Christ spiritually, but we're not with Him yet physically. Verse 8. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Physically with Him. And yet that's a misnomer because in our present state, we could not be with Him. But we have to have a different body if we're going to be with him. And that's what we're waiting on is this different body that he's going to give us when he returns. So the unbelieving souls, now now this is the real negative part of this that he makes. So the believing souls are with Christ in heaven. We can see that in Revelation 5 we see... We see some coming out of tribulation and great tribulation. They're under the altar. The souls of the, of the dead from, from earth believing people. They're in heaven with the Lord. But what about the souls of the unbelieving? The unbelieving souls who died are in hell. Or a place we call Hades at this present time. Hades. <clears throat> I would surmise from this that The lake of fire exists, but there's nobody in it yet. Nobody in the lake of fire yet. It's just there burning. But notice, we will be given, they will be given, these people in hell, in Hades, which is in the earth, a a spiritual place in the earth, a place of torment and suffering. Notice, they will be given bodies, resurrected bodies, made especially so that they can stand before Christ for judgment. Jesus spoke of this in Luke chapter 16 when he spoke about Lazarus and the rich man. Lazarus laid out in front of his gate and he was full of sores and the dogs came and licked his sores and the rich man wouldn't help him. All he did was sit sit at home and count his money. The rich man died and it said in hell, in hell, he lifted up his eyes being in torment. He saw Lazarus who had died as well over in the paradise part of that place he saw that he was comforted and he was with Abraham and he cried out father Abraham tell Lazarus to dip his finger in water just drip it on my tongue I am in misery in this place Abraham said sorry we can't come to you and you can't come to us you had your opportunity to believe the gospel you had your opportunity to help Lazarus and now he's comforted and you're tormented. Well, he got a sort of a new lease on his condition and said, I don't want anybody else to come to this place. I've got five brothers. Send someone to tell them. 
not to come here. What did Abraham say? They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. That is a great statement. So what does it mean? I'm going to wrap up with this. With this, What does it mean when he speaks of those who have done good as opposed to those who have done evil? Because that throws a lot of people. There is a definite connection between those who have been given the gift of life and those who have been raised and have done good. There's a connection. Because the unbelieving cannot do good in God's sight. Nothing they can do that's good, right? That's what scriptures teach. So the good then that people have done must be the good that they have done through the Holy Spirit after they believed. John spoke of this already in chapter 3, verse 21. Listen to what he says. But whoever does what is true or good comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works, his good deeds have been carried out in God. People who, whom Christ gives life to are now able to do good deeds through the Holy Spirit that indwells them and that those good deeds will be brought up at the resurrection. How does that happen? Well, that's why these judgments are two different ones, not the same combined. Because Paul speaks of this this time, this resurrection to life, as the judgment of the believer. It's called the judgment seat of Christ. Paul speaks of it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It is for believers only. There be no unbelievers there at that judgment. In juxtaposition to that, there are those who have done evil and they have not experienced the grace of God and forgiveness of of sin and they love their evil deeds and that's what they lived for. They lived to sin and that's all they could do anyway. John 3.19 And this is the judgment. Light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than light. Why do they love darkness rather than light? Because their works were evil. So unless there's any misunderstanding about the nature of works, good versus evil, John is not saying that good works equal salvation For they certainly do not. If that were the case, Paul would have written to the Ephesians and he would have said, By your works you're saved, not the grace of God. But that's not what he said, is it? He said, By grace you're saved, not of works. So that you're not able to boast about the salvation you've got. All you can do is praise God for it. Glorify Christ for it. He is saying that salvation produces good works, which are in turn used to glorify God. So the real work, the real good work that people do is to believe on Christ for forgiveness and for salvation. That's the real good work. Listen to what he says from from chapter 6. This is the good that they've done. From chapter 6, verse 27. Do not work for the food that perishes, but work for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him God the Father has set His seal. Then they said to Him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And here it is. He answered them, 
This is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he has sent. That's it. So when Jesus speaks the word, which, by the way, uh, I was looking this morning. I, I never really thought about it. But there are several sounds we're going to hear when Christ returns. One will be the voice of Christ himself. It says he will, he will send forth a, a shout of command. Jesus himself will. And then it says the voice of the archangel as well will be there. And the trumpet of God will sound. So there's going to be these sounds that we hear when Christ returns. And when he calls us to himself and we stand before him as his children to be rewarded for what we've done in this life, the thing that he will say to us is, the good you did was you believed me. You trusted me. Enter into the joy of your Lord. The unbelieving dead have to wait until the great white throne judgment. Where Christ will judge them for their sin. The point of all of this is believe. Believe Jesus. Trust Him. Follow Him. Do the works that He has given you to do. And that, that work is to believe Him. To believe what He says. And to practice that in works that show that we are indeed believers. Not, this is not a difficult thing to understand. But it is sometimes difficult to practice. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do thank you for this Lord's Day. Thank you that we can come and sing together and pray and give and listen to your word expounded and find in it that You are the King. You are the Son of Man. You are the one, the Sovereign Lord, who will judge all humanity. Some who have done good, who are your followers, and others who are not. They're lost in their sin. They die without you, and it is a judgment then unto death in a lake of fire. Father, we're thankful that you chose to reveal yourself to us and that in doing so you drew us to yourself and saved us and gave us the very life that you have. What a blessing to undeserving sinners like us. We thank you and we praise you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.